Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerwand. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. I'm delighted that we are starting out the new year with a conversation with Dr. Joe Lang. This is the third of a three-part conversation. Dr. Lang is a behavior analyst who has over 40 years of experience in the experimental and applied analysis of behavior. And his particular area of interest, one of the many, is on the design of teaching and learning environments. Joe is not a horse trainer, but the studies that he's been sharing with us are very relevant for all of us who work with horses, with dogs, with children, you know, whoever our our learners are. These studies that he's describing just are, they're they're mind-blowing, they're fascinating, and they are very relevant in terms of helping us to understand the behavior that our animals are presenting. And they're also showing us that the animals that we work with are capable of just some just extraordinary behavior. So in part one of our conversation, Joe defined contingency adduction and shared several just fascinating experiments that were done with pigeons. Pigeons showed self-awareness by passing the mirror test. They demonstrated tool use and they left themselves notes so they would know which color or key to peck after the experimenters put them into a long delay. These experiments show that it is not a genetically based cognitive ability that determines whether or not an individual can solve a particular puzzle. It's the component skills that are in repertoire. This is true for pigeons, for people, and for horses, which makes it relevant to all of us who teach. In part two, Joe describes a series of experiments showing how the manipulation of schedules of reinforcement can change social behavior. And in a very clever series of experiments, Dr. Paul Andronis demonstrated that pigeons showed perspective taking, theory of mind, and symbolic aggression. Joe ended that episode by saying, but wait, there's more. There's more to this story. But before we jump back into the conversation and find out what the more is, let me give a quick reminder of the experimental setup that Joe has been describing. So the experimental chamber was a large rectangular box that was divided into two chambers that were separated by plexiglass dividers. And the dividers, the separating dividers formed a V so the pigeons could see one another, but they couldn't directly access the other bird's chamber. At the front of each chamber, there was a key that the pigeons could peck, and below that was a food hopper. In the side walls between the two birds, there were two keys for each bird, one that was close to the front of the chamber, and the other was a little further away. 
And then in the ceiling, there were three lights. Initially, the way the birds were initially trained, when the red light was illuminated, the birds had to peck the key that was in the front of their chamber 10 times to activate the food dispenser. When the yellow light was on, they had to peck the, the key 50 times. And when the light was green, they had to pick, peck the key 200 times. So the birds really wanted to have the red light on because then they didn't have to work as hard and they got more access to food. And when they saw the green light on, that was like, oh, now I'm really going to have to work hard to get the food. So once the birds had learned this basic repertoire, some of the birds were shaped to peck the keys in the dividing wall. And initially they learned that if they pecked the near key in the sidewall, they could turn the light from green to red. So pecking the key in the sidewall was reinforced by the light signaling a change to the easier condition. So if they, if they were under the green light and they pecked that key on the sidewall, they could turn the light to red and they only had to peck 10 times. So that was a good deal from the pigeon's point of view. So that was the basic setup. In episode two, Joe described various manipulations that were done that were known to trigger aggressive behavior. So by manipulating the schedules of reinforcement, you could frustrate the birds and they would show aggressive behavior towards other individuals. But the birds were separated from one another by the plexiglass dividers. So the attack bird couldn't actually have a knockdown drag out fight with the other bird. And instead, this bird carried out an aggressive attack by changing the other bird's light from red to green. So what we were seeing was symbolic aggression in pigeons. Very cool. But wait, there's more. And that's what Joe's going to share with us as we jump back into the conversation and we find out what further devilish manipulations they devised for these poor birds. In other words, this bird has shows everything that people would call perspective taking. Yep. Yep. And theory of mind. Wow. Right? So this bird brain is showing perspective taking and theory of mind in symbolic attack. So what do the cognitive scientists when they encounter this research, do they go crazy? A few of them encounter it, <laughs> actually. They don't read the journals that this is published in. But it, what's fascinating about it is that it is, it is the presence of these component repertoires and the histories you're giving the birds that account for the patterns. And these are highly complex patterns that we see that pigeons have never before engaged in their entire life. Right? Never. Ever. But the story is not finished. <laughs> you know, I feel like Ron Popeil selling the uh, 
and for the, those of, of our age who watch Ron Popeil sell the pocket fishermen and the, and the chicken rotisserie and so on. And you get to the end, you'd say, but wait, there's more. There's more. <laughs> so the next thing was to take two attack birds, activate keys so that the key on one side affects the keys on the other side and the lights, and stick them in. So they have interaction on each other. Yep. They can control one another's lights, but not their own. Mm -hmm. They're both on these F540 schedules, both of them. Now what do they do? They cooperate. Well, the first thing they do is attack each other. Okay. Green to green. Oh, God. Green to green. Uh, they'll go peck it out, right? Because I have to. Light comes back on white. They walk over. Green to green. <gasps> this is this is no good. Because yeah, right? they're basically keeping one another from ever getting reinforced. Right. Yeah. Any exactly. time I see that your light goes to a lesser work schedule, I'm going to race over and peck the key that makes right. you work harder again. And the right. other bird's doing the same thing. Now, remember the his history, Ben, that when you're in green, you switch and peck your key and turns it red. So mm -hmm. eventually, what happens is one of the birds goes over and pecks the key that turns it red, but not for him, for the other guy. Yeah. By chance? Why? Why would he? Why does he do that? It was a historically reinforced pattern switching. Mm, so yeah. when you got a drop in reinforcement rate in the condition of the green, historically mm. you would would you would yep. switch. So eventually yep. that pattern it re reoccurs, just like the headbanging. Yep. So it reoccurs. It switches, hits the red. Now the bird in the other chamber, it would be really good if he would reciprocate, but of course, he cares not for the other bird. Right. It's red. Oh boy. He runs and eats. Does a 10. The bird does it again, turns it red. He runs and eats. The bird goes, turns it red. He runs to eat. And now this bird walks back and pecks the green and takes it away from him. So before, okay. before he can complete the task, the other bird has said, no way. Right. It's green. And the bird goes, what? what? What happened? And he kind of walks back over, right? And he goes back and turns it red again. And the bird races over to get it. He pecks it and turns it green, takes it away from him. Say, oh my goodness. This is pretty nuts. Yep. Right? So, what happens is, eventually, the bird that is experiencing this, right, is switching. One bird is switching, the other getting it, taking it away. Then this bird is getting it taken away. It eventually acquiesces and turns it red. Now the bird, now remember, the bird is in green, right? Yep. He comes over and turns it red. And the bird is standing in front of the key that turns it red. And this and the bird on the other side comes over, faces him, and pecks it, turns it red. Do you think that bird reciprocates? Oh no. It runs now and, <laughs> and pecks out the tent and gets its food. 
And he does it again. It takes it away from him, takes it away from him, till it pecks. And then it runs and gets its food. Okay. A few times. Now, the, that bird, when the bird, he turns it red. The bird runs to get its food. Now, the bird on the other side walks down and turns it green and takes it away from him. So now they're in a pure tit-for-tat situation. So what evolves is a green, green. In other words, one peck's green, the other peck's green. One peck's red, and then the other one peck's red. Or if it doesn't, you know, the um, uh, it's taken away. Mm -hmm. The one that did, yeah, that's yeah. in red. If you don't reciprocate, now it's taken away. And so you get green, green, red, red as the pattern well that's a lot of energy and eventually it goes to green red red and then to red red so cooperation evolves over the course of the interaction however every once in a while <laughs> it's red run to get it and what happens the other one goes and takes it away from you. All right. Wow. Keep them on us. Call the keep them on us response. So cooperation is a function of not the mutual reinforcement. It's for what happens to you if you don't cooperate. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, a kind of a mutually assured destruction. Contingencies yeah. <laughs> yeah. are set up. And and cooperation was not the first choice. It wasn't, no. oh, let's no. all be nice together. No. 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 Wow. Not the first choice. And so what's fascinating about this is none of this was experimenter trained. Right. That's the non-social component. Remember, they were all trained completely in non-social environments with the component repertoires. It was when the social contingencies intermixed with these histories that this emerged. So what we see is a very, very complex symbolic behavior can occur with pigeons that lead to total cooperation, untrained cooperation, as long as there's a keep an honest response. And by the way, that variable was played with. If you allow one bird to have to work more than another, one becomes dominant over the other and so forth. And so... Uh, you could change which one was dominant by changing the schedule requirements or turning it green or red. Wow. So it was, uh, we showed that dominance was a function of the symbolic exchange. Right. As well. So it's, in other words, power did I have in this relationship? Yeah. So yeah. it's not, oh, well, this puppy is going to grow up to become the dominant dog because he has these personality characteristics. Now it's. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. This point. Now, here's what I'd like to do. And I know this is a podcast, right? Yeah. I know this is a podcast. Let me do this here. I'm going to show you a video so you can react to it to, for your audience. <laughs> All right. So here is a pigeon okay. in operation experiment that I showed you. It's in black and white, so you won't see the colors. But my son went in and put uh, the letters R or G 
for when it's red or green on one side or the other. So okay. when it's red on one side, you'll see an R. If it's green on, on one side, you'll see a G. All right? Okay. And you'll see these interactions uh, as they occur. And then then they aren't, he got lazy in the, in the last third of it. There's no, no letters, but there's something interesting about that I'll point out in a minute. Okay, so here it is. Both in red, see that? Okay. So they're getting their food now. And then they're back to the social keys. So red is... Guess what he did? He cheated. Oops. He defeated. He defected. He didn't reciprocate. Yeah. Did it again. Now look at the bird walks back toward where the green key is, but he hasn't pecked it, right? Now watch. <laughs> he took it away. Okay. And now this guy said, and he said, what? You're, you're not reciprocating? He took it away from him. Again. So now they're both cooperating. Right. Pretty wild, huh? Yeah. But look at how they keep an eye on one another. Oh, yeah. And it's happening fast. Right. And he, it's they're seeing, hey, you're not near that key. See, now look at him. It's like he walks to the key and says, oh, no. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wild, huh? Yeah, it mm -hmm. really is. And so the, uh, and I think now the letters drop off. But what's interesting is you'll see that one will turn one red. The other one will not reciprocate. The one that has not been reciprocated will take a step or two toward the green. The other one will see it and peck the red. Ah. <laughs> That's what's occurring here. And if you're if you're careful, you can watch them. Like, okay, wait. All right. All right. All right. Now he starts walking back. Okay, I'll do it. Okay. I'll 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 reciprocate. Wow. Gonna defect. Huh. In other words, they have they have a they predict what the other bird is going what to do. What did you do? Talk about in theory of mind. And this is what they talk about in perspective taking, right? And yes. what you saw, and you can tell your audience there that you actually saw these birds do this. <laughs> and, and, and it's uh, uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's it's very um, head spinning is what it is. So you got to see with your own eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and isn't it remarkable when you see it? It's yeah yes, and it's all happening so fast. They're not they're not spending a lot of time deliberating over what to do. They just do it. Wow, that's right. That's right. Now there's a little bit more to this story. Okay. So these were two. Um, initially, it was two attack birds placed against one another. Now we take a bird that has this history of cooperation like this. And of taking it and giving it and taking it and giving it. Okay. And we took a bird that has never had a history of aggression. Just trained it to peck the side keys and they. And the, so you put one with no no history, history and one aggression. with the history of cooperation. Right. No history of aggression. Peck the side. Excuse me. Pecked its own side keys, and changed the light colors. You know, it had all the components but no history of aggression. It's now placed in the chamber with the bird. And now the aggression, the bird that had the attack bird, you know, that had that history, yeah. now shaped the other bird to cooperate. Oh. It did not need the aggression history. Once that bird had learned the pattern, 
it trained the other bird, even though the other bird had no aggression history to reciprocate and to engage in the cooperation. Wow. Now that bird was taken and placed in the chamber with yet another bird that had no history of aggression. And that bird trained the other bird to cooperate. Without ever going to aggression. So the aggression history in its past dropped out, was no longer there in this cult. In other words, we had cultural transmission wow. of the pattern that was able to be established in the absence of the originating conditions. Mm-hmm. Because now it was culturally transmitted. So you have cultural transmission by so, these pigeons. But if you put back the original conditions that uh, produce the aggression, oh, I'm sure they would. I'm, they would. Uh, they yeah. would be aggressive it, again. Right. You, that's an interesting uh, uh, question too. Because if the animal has control of the other bird and the side keys work, it what instead of aggression, you get shaping them to cooperate. Mm-hmm. So you didn't get attack if you have a history of of shape cooperation. Like, oh, if I can get this bird to peck this key, I get more food. That overcame the aggression. Right? So there's hope for for humans. After all, if we could just start out with cooperative repertoires. Well, but don't forget, there always had to be a keep them honest response. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, cooperation and, and altruism, it looks, you know, these birds had all they had all the chance in the world to be altruistic. <laughs> they never chose it. <laughs> not without a not without a keep them honest response. If you take the keep them honest response away, it all fell apart. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we so, need we need our nuclear deterrence. Yeah. Yes, you need your nuclear deterrent. You need you need all kinds of deterrence to get cooperation. As much as people don't like to think that's true, it probably is true. The point here is you can see the level and complexity of behavior that can be arranged for organisms that are known not entirely euphemistically as bird brains. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> To do extraordinarily complex things in which pigeons have n- evolution never required in the in while they're out walking the city streets, right? But it gave them what evolution gave them was the ability to to acquire the components that allow for this com- level of complexity. Mm-hmm. And so, the level and what was also fascinating is that none of of the social interaction was ever trained by the experiment. Mm, right. There was, no, there was no training. It's all emerged from the, the non-social components. And it's what we call dependent, independent contingencies and so on. There's all sorts of technical stuff. But the fact is, what has been done in the laboratory to demonstrate this is, is shows the extraordinary capabilities of most animals. Yes, yes. And that discussions of is this animal have the ability to do this or that? It's well, you know, give me a laboratory and the animal 
We'll get them. We'll get them right. to do it. You know, I can't teach a horse to fly, but I might be able to teach them to do a bunch of other complex stuff that no horse has ever done before, right? Without direct mm -hmm. training. And you know, and there are you, you showed one time, Alex, and this is a micro shaping uh, demonstration where you shaped up. You took a horse that had horrible posture or balance or whatever it was. And you demonstrated this sway back or whatever it was. It looked yeah. like old, old, old beat up horse. And you shaped its uh, front thigh. And then you shaped a back hoof, uh, back foot placement. And you would point to the different parts of the critter you were shaping. And then you took a step back. And with the rope tied to the halter, you, it, you just put a little pressure. And the horse took one step forward. But in now, perfect posture. Perfect posture. Right. And so these components came together. Now, you didn't train perfect posture. No. You put the components in so that when the contingencies were such, where the requirement was there, they all came together by themselves to create this perfect posture. And then click, you can reinforce it. Yeah. In other words, you reduced that perfect posture by first putting the components into place, then creating the conditions where they come together, and then you can adduce it, you can reinforce it. You didn't shoot it. And so these are the types of things that are extremely powerful. This notion of these component repertoires yes. that can be put together. You know, uh, for a long time, people uh, train kids, particularly kids who are developmentally challenged, challenged to do certain chains of behavior. Things like brushing your teeth and so forth. And they found that it was difficult to do, even in a backward chaining type of thing. Well, until someone got the bright ideas, well, they, do they know how to turn a water faucet on? <laughs> you know, can they twist the knob, <laughs> right? Can they shake the thing? Can they squeeze, like to squeeze a toothpick? So they went in and taught them to, to touch, to grasp, to squeeze, to shake, all separately. Mm. Once they got good at that, they just had to show them how to brush your teeth. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so the components then, the, the critical element here is these, these components that can combine in very complex ways and produce outcomes. Now, when we're looking at problem behavior, we tend to look at it as it's composite as well. But it is likely a function of various components that were there that now come together. So when it's the source appears to come out of nowhere, it's actually the recombination of components. Yes that historically occurred in the past. That much like the headbanging wasn't occurring in the present until that schedule was there, then all of a sudden it was back, right? So these patterns can reoccur and much like um, what we saw in the early experiments, the tool use, the memorandum use, all of this were components that were there, put in a new situation, they combined and it occurred all at once as though, as though spontaneously out of thin air. And so these things are often a, a function of these uh, component repertoires. Yeah. And this is the basis of our understanding of nonlinear contingency analysis in that variables affecting one repertoire affect another repertoire. And the requirements placed on multiple repertoires combine to create new repertoires unpredicted by the single repertoire alone. Yes. Mm. You can't look at the reinforcement just for that one repertoire and predict it. 
you have to look at what's going on with the other other elements. And this is what I've been thinking about throughout as you've been talking about this is, you know, we've, we've looked at some undesirable behaviors like the headbanging, but how do we turn this around to create behaviors right. that we want? And this, this idea of putting in the components, putting in the repertoire and having things pop out. And we see this where the, you know, this, uh, the, you'll see a behavior such as lateral work suddenly is popping out, but you didn't directly teach the lateral work. You taught the underlying components. And what this hopefully sparks is this idea of, first of all, we need, we need to become so much more creative in terms of what is possible. Because if, if pigeons can use symbols and can, you know, do all of these other things that you've <laughs> described. I mean, we are just, we are in such a narrow little tight box in terms of what we can train. And so we need to, right. we need to expand our thinking in terms of what our animals are capable of. And then this idea of, I don't have to know how to teach an advanced performance behavior. I just need to put the components in. That's right. And, and that the more we understand this process, the more we will learn about, well, what components are useful to have if you right. want to get right. uh, exactly. to a certain and, result. And I've seen some work, you know, it, I, I started off talking about Kay Lawrence. Well, yeah. lifting the paw is a component to putting your paw on the box. Right. <laughs> You're trying to train, right? So that had to be taught first. Once that was taught, the other part came really easily. Yep. And I've seen Hannah Brannigan do component types of training too with uh, our animals and so forth, where they talk about it. So some of it is being done in the absolutely. And I'm sure I'm sure there are many many examples your listeners have of of doing just that, but it's doing it with a uh, you know with with an understanding of you know thinking about the the composite performance you want, and then asking yourself, what are the components that I need? Yes. You almost have to reverse engineer it. <laughs> and yeah. by the way, that's how we taught reading. That was our early reading program. We put in the various components and then put in conditions under which they'd recombine. Now, we were teaching reading over the internet without being able to see or hear the child. So how do you do that? Well, you have to really look at the components and how you put the requirements together for those components. And then how you set up the conditions where they will combine with other components so that they create a composite, which will then be a, a, a component of a yet more complex composites. So this was entirely how our, our, our program worked. And we've published on this uh, topic. And what kind of conditions made the novel behavior more likely? What were the, the winning conditions for that to happen? Oh, you just well, you well, two things. I mean, you're asking a, actually a more complex question than you think. <laughs> <laughs> in, that, in that you have reinforcers that you put in the program that are fun things that kids can do when they, they travel along. But the real key is accomplishment in the area of seeing themselves approaching reading and getting to a book was the real reinforcers that had to be potentiated. In other words, seeing, so by the by the fifth episode, 
after about 90 minutes of instruction, they could read a little book by themselves. Wow. And that's a huge reinforcer. Yep. And you can then take it and read it to someone else. And and this, it wasn't a complex book, you know, it wasn't more peace, but it was. But it was a <laughs> yeah. book and they were a non-reader to start out with. They're non-readers. They were four, five, six years old. And the uh, um, and they've been taught to do this by a computer. They couldn't hear or see them. So this was uh, this was an extremely difficult challenge, but one which we reverse engineered, figured out how to do it, built upon very complex analysis of verbal behavior and and uh, from Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior and so forth, um, and applied it in pro in our knowledge of programming. But it wasn't something that, like, um, you say, oh, you know, you put all these smart people there and they figured out how to do this. The smart people were actually the children because yeah. we listened to their behavior as we we're designing the program. So when we didn't get what we thought we were going to get, we changed it until we did. In other words, we use what we call a control analysis iterative design. So if we got less than criterion responding, we said, oh, the program's wrong, not the individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. We left something out. Sometimes you get the lesson, say, 22, and there are errors. And you look at, okay, what are the components necessary to do lesson 22? And you find out the components causing the problem was taught in lesson seven. And they appeared to get everything in lesson seven right, but you realize you didn't do it to the extent or cover the things you needed to do in order to be applied correctly in 22. So you yeah. actually had to go back, not change lesson 22, but change lesson seven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the complexity of what you had to do. And, and when you're doing these component analyses, it's like, you know, it's maybe it's maybe not the composite teaching that I have to change. It's the component teaching I have to change. That's that explanation of why there is so much value to periodically go back in our training and review oh, yeah. those foundation lessons. Because the first time through, when you uh, teach a, a particular, like a simple basic targeting to a horse, it's good enough for what you're working on at that point, but mm -hmm. it's not good enough for lesson 22. Right, and, exactly. And so when you hit lesson 22, you're going to discover that yeah, my horse sort of knows, sort of knows, sort of targeting, but not, not to the extent that is needed for this lesson. And what I need to do to solve that is to go back to that, seven. yeah, to lesson number seven. And, yep. and that's the explanation for that. Yeah, exactly. And, the, uh, and this is why it took two and a half years to do 40 lessons. Yeah. And over 10,000 program revisions. Wow. 10,000 program revisions over two and a half years, 250 children testing one at a time. Wow. And so it was quite an undertaking. And for, it took another year, a year and a half almost, to do the, the remaining 40. And so we ended up with an 80 lesson program at a price tag of over $4 million. So it was, uh, it was quite an undertaking. It's not something you can just do in the, you know, no, in your spare time. But <laughs> the result of that is head sprout. And you have taught how many children to read? A little over 4 million. 
So that's a pretty good return on investment. Yeah. 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 Per, per, per head. That's, uh, yeah. 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 And if people were more aware of the of, of head sprout, you'd be teaching a lot more children. Well, actually, uh, I just learned that they're discontinuing head sprout, the company that bought it, because, you know, it's easier to sell other products and easier to sell uh, replacement products, even though they may not be as effective. It's still easier to sell and easier to use. And so they're so it's being discontinued in the October of 2024. Oh. So. Unless someone else acquires it from that company, which is possible. You never know. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, it's had a good run. So over 20 years. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm pleased. Yes. <laughs> yes. And there are 4 million, 4 million children who are readers because of it. And they're pleased. So right. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I've run into people who we just get chatting. And I mentioned, oh, that's what taught my kid. And he was the ace reader. And. Oh, by the time he got into third grade, he was just reading everything and so on. Mm. So it, was, it was fun. We also did uh, Head Sprout uh, Reading Comprehension. And it's the only program that directly teaches children how to comprehend text. Just not, does not just simply give them comprehension exercises. It analyzed what was meant by comprehension and taught it. And so the... Uh... <laughs> which, which is a big problem apparently here anyway, but I'm sure it's the same elsewhere that they don't, you know, students don't comprehend, even university students don't comprehend what they're reading. Right. Well, and the and there's and there are ways of teaching that and that that work. <laughs> so I can say the uh, uh, but it you won't find it used outside of our program anywhere. There's why why not? It's not easy, it's complex. You have to have a particular convergence of repertoires in order to produce programs that do it. A sensitivity to behavior. I think probably if most of the animal trainers, the reinforcement-based animal trainers that I've seen were told the procedures, they could probably go in and teach it pretty easily. <laughs> but but <laughs> they have a sense of the of sensitivity to behavior, the change, to looking at your organism, you know, to basing what you're doing based on what they're doing and so on, that typically teachers don't have. Okay. You know, the real problem with that teachers face, and this isn't, you know, account for all the problems, but things go well as long as they're going well. It's interventions. What happens when the student can't perform, isn't performing? Right. Oftentimes it's, Say it again, slower, louder, <laughs> you know, and over again. Repeat it three times. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, rather than saying, oh, what's the component missing here? What am I, what needs to be put in place so that they can respond to it as the other kids are responding to it? These are questions that are, aren't typically asked. Mm. All right. Yeah. And that as a horse trainer, that becomes the first question that you want to ask. Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 I agree. Yeah. So I think, um, like I said, the, uh, you know, it's a whole fun area, this whole area of behavior analysis and what I call contingency analysis, because it's not behavior I'm interested in. It's the contingency that is responsible for the behavior. Right. But the, uh, uh, is that you can do so many wonderful things. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, 
Um, and we can solve a range of problems. In the clinic, we do, uh, you know, we solved a great many, help people a lot of distress by understanding these relations. That's the same set of relations that is going on, right? Same set. Yeah. And it's the interaction of all these variables, which are, which, you know, what people tend to do when they look at a distributing pattern of behavior is look at the costs. What they don't look at is the benefits of the pattern. And they don't look at what would happen if you did something else. It's even worse. Yeah. You know, and I had a woman who was screaming, the devil wants a pint of blood, the devil wants a pint of blood. And she was actually talking about her husband and the uh, and the requirements he was placing. And when we started talking about that, she dropped the devil part and, and so on. And someone said to me, well, Joe, why didn't she just say that she wants uh, more help at home and, and to remove the requirements for her husband? Why did she engage in that? I said, what makes you think she hasn't said it? Right. <laughs> Nobody's listened. <laughs> now you're listening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> typically what I found is people have said it, <laughs> right? And the uh, so you know you can make sense out of behavior in a variety of ways, even when there's a an organic or physiological basis. So I probably shouldn't go down this rabbit hole, but. So given all of this, how do we bring about peace between Russia and the Ukraine? <laughs> well, there you've got reinforcers that are maintaining Vladimir Putin's behavior that is probably out of our control and more in control of the Russian oligarchs. <laughs> and so probably cost, when it starts costing them a lot of their fortune, you might see changes. <laughs> so my guess is... So, so we're back to the fact that cooperation is a selfish thing. Yes, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, because right. I couldn't help it when, when, you know, when with the pigeon tit for tat going, wait a minute. No, you know, this fact, is, yeah. Well, from Russia's point of view, they didn't think there would be much of a tat. Correct. They ran into more of a tat than they than they bargained for. That's correct. They thought they, they were. Now you know that uh, when the Soviet Union dissolved and Ukraine became independent, Ukraine had three thousand nuclear weapons. Yes, which they mm -hmm. sent that back. Was a, uh, one of the locations, their houses, and under agreement of mutual security agreement with Russia at that time, they returned the nuclear weapons. Yeah. Now if they'd have kept them, there would have been no attack on Ukraine. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. If they had kept their nuclear weapons, they would not have attacked. Yeah. And so, you know, people talk about the evil of nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's sad to contemplate, but it's, but it's there. But it's there. Uh, let me wind down here. To plug my book. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you want to know more about some of these issues, particularly as it relates to uh, the clinical aspects and so forth, is the book Nonlinear Contingency Analysis Going Beyond, what is it? Yeah, look at the title. Ah, Cognition and Behavior Clinical Practice. And it is uh, sold through Rutledge and available 
through wherever fine books are sold online in particular. <laughs> That's right. And it is very much worth the read. So a huge appreciation once again. And, and I still have a list of topics that I would love to get to. But, uh, and you didn't leave us with a teaser. You left us with a book to read, which is well yeah, worth reading. The book well, yes. there's one teaser that I think, there's one thing we need to discuss more one day um, in terms of animal training is the schedules of reinforcement. I think we, I would love to deepen a little bit um, into that um, in relation to what we do the, with the animals. Right. I think one of the things that uh, is interesting is that in the laboratory, guys like Jack Finley and so on, have arranged the program such that, you know, the pigeon gets three seconds access to grain when the little hopper comes up, right? He arranged a pigeon to peck 20,000 times yeah. for one hopper delivery. In other words, a pigeon will pet, the amount of behavior that an organism will do in order to produce that food. And by the way, if that was the only food the animal is giving, getting, it would starve to death. It mm. would be not enough to maintain it. Of course, they feed it outside the session. Mm. But it would not be enough to maintain its behavior. Well, no, he's, he's, he's spending so much energy. And time. Mm. Interestingly, similar holds true for humans. They have programs which will get a human to respond to an ordinate amount of responding for one little reinforcer. If you program it, and it has to do with how you program these schedules and how you move through these schedules and mm -hmm. how you set them up. So, you know, when people say, well, how do I get the animal's behavior uh, when I can't reinforce every time? Well, do you want them to do it 20,000 times before you have to reinforce? <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's possible. Now, it may not be a happy doggy, but it's yeah. possible. <laughs> it's possible to do that. And so this is what schedules give you. And mm -hmm. there's another schedule that is extremely, showing to be extremely important in particularly working with dogs and other similar animals um, in, in, you know, cats and so on, uh, is, is uh, what's called conjugate reinforcement schedule. And here it's, you know, typical reinforcement is episodic, meaning that you do something get it reinforced, you do something else, you get reinforced. Well, in conjugate reinforcement, the reinforcement is continuous and never stops as long as you're responding. So as long as you're behaving, it's continuous reinforcement occurring. The rate of your responding governs, or the topography, whatever you design, governs how much reinforcement you get. And it's okay. under the control of the organism. So the organism responds more, they get more of it, they respond less, they get less of it. And they determine whether they respond more or less. And the uh, and so in, in essence, the rate of reinforcement governs the, in other words, the magnitude of right. reinforcement rather than episode. Okay. So what they're doing in, in, uh, in the uh, Constructional Approach to Animal Welfare and Training Group, you know, with the uh, uh, Sean Will and Masa Nashimoto, yeah. uh, they're using affection, a tactile contact. You can call it affection, but it's actually tactile contact. 
right. with the animal. So, for example, a dog jumps on, it's, it's likes the contact. Contact is a reinforcer. So you don't not give it that contact. You let it jump on you. You don't push it away. By the way, pushing away gives it even more contact. <laughs> yeah. Right? So the dog's going, oh, boy, we got a game now going. So uh, contact. But when four paws hit the, the floor, they pet it vigorously with one hand. Right? And the dog jumps up. They stop petting, but the dog maintains contact with your body, jumps down the ground, vigorously petting. If the dog sits down, then they pet with two hands. So they keep the petting going. The dog stands up, they go to one hand. Pretty soon, without much effort, with no food, the dog sees you come home and runs and sits in front of you. And you, yeah. what do you do? Reach down and pet it. This is a natural thing that you do. So they're doing this with shelter dogs and finding out the transfer to home and the maintenance of the behavior at home is much easier because it's affection. Right. Right. And so they're using this to shape all kinds of behaviors. And Masa, uh, her thesis was using this with horses. Mm. She used a uh, tactile simulation affection with to, to shape uh, behaviors in horses. And she's got some great videos here. One of the great videos is she's in this open field and she's doing working with this horse. I forgot what it was she was shaving, but that's not the fun part of the story. The fun part of the story is these animals were skittish before. And first they use a, a cat procedure to get close to them. You know, you go up, right. you walk away, you close to walk away. Then you get up and then you start laying on the affection and so on. Three other, a donkey, a mule, and a horse that's out there with them watches all this and they come over and stick their head in there and say, yeah. hey, how about for me? And these really <laughs> skittish animals, are, they see this going on and they're going, hey, my turn. <laughs> when do I get my ear scratches and so on? You know, it was pretty good to watch these videos with these. And they're shaping all this stuff with just tactile stimulation. Now, tactile stimulation has to be a reinforcer. Yeah. Right? Right. You know? Yeah. For some horses, it might not. Yeah, exactly. Or dogs. Yeah, or dogs. But yeah. And just like barking at something to drive it away has to be a reinforcer for the distancing procedures to work. You know, if it's maintained by a different reinforcer, then it won't. So yeah, it's it's there. But they're doing some, but they're working the shelters with the dogs. And they've got these tremendous videos where these dogs have been in there for a year. Unadopted. And they'll go in and work with the dog for two or three days and pretty soon it's adopted. And all without any food reinforcement and using this conjugate schedules and so forth. It's really pretty amazing to watch these dogs. And what's fascinating is it looks like the personality of the dog changes. Mm. Yeah. The temperament changes. A dog that's highly aggressive and barking and jumping, all of a sudden is when it sees you, it goes lays down on its cot. Mm. Right? Wait a minute. That was the dog that last week was going being wild, right? And so, uh, and the dog kind of selected that pattern. It, it, it's like, well, if I lay on the cot and you'll come over and, and uh, pet me, I'll just lay here. You come on over. <laughs> mm. And so on. And what fascinated me was how much these animals actually will respond for tactile stimulation. Mm. Yeah, it's underrated. Yeah, exactly. You know, and the and how you do it is important too, you know, and you know, and where you do it and how you do it and so on. So different animals have different spots that they like. But it's it's some fascinating stuff being done. And mm -hmm. the, so schedules, 
uh, can have a pretty dramatic effect. By the way, that's how they evaluate the behavior of infants. They'll like put a little mobile on their toe with a little string on their toe and they'll kick. And the kicking will turn the little mobile mm -hmm. over their head. Data kicking makes it go faster, lower rate makes it go slower. And they'll show how you can bring certain behaviors under control with these conjugate schedules of infants as well. Well, before you can talk to them and so on. Mm. This is a few days old. It's, is there any any good reads for animal trainer on schedules of reinforcement that you can think of? Well, that's a good question. You know, that are particularly written for animal trainers. Or that, you no. know, an animal trainer could could translate into what they do. That's a very good question. I, I think we just have to have another one of these <laughs> lovely afternoons where you, uh, because lis listening to you uh, uh, tell, the, it's like listening to a good bedtime story. When you read some of these papers, it's like, all right, now what, what were they doing? What light was controlling what? And, and yet to hear it, the research unfolded in the way that you did this afternoon. I mean, it just makes it so endlessly fascinating. So clearly, we'll have to have, have an afternoon of schedules. Here's an interesting thing that I'm not sure animal trainers have thought much about. They may have. Um, I don't want to get any evil letters saying, yeah, we've been thinking about this for years. I just don't, I'm just not aware. Maybe there is that in game design, uh, they will employ schedules of reinforcement in video game design. Yes. So if I want to keep, let's say I'm shooting orcs, whatever an orc is, I'm shooting orcs. I put the schedule of the orc shooting on a racial schedule. If I want to keep the person focused and not paying attention to what else is going on in the environment. If I want them to explore, I will then use interval schedules. And so they manipulate the schedules and the relative rates of reinforcement, that's another thing, imagine, that we could talk about, of alternative schedules to govern the types of interaction with the game that the user is having. Okay. So if you want an animal that is focused and won't give you variability, then you use ratios. If you want more variability, use intervals, and so uh -huh. on. And so this is what they do in the game designs. And so they usually, these schedules, to manipulate the the learn the user's behavior, and sometimes they do it such that if you do deviate from this focus and go over here, it's a big payoff for you. So mm -hmm. more experienced game designers may learn that oh, this is asking me for consistent behavior here. I better try something else. <laughs> so in other words, there's kind of hierarchical rules that that yes. develop in that. And so forth. So it's a, uh, a really interesting area. And there's a whole other area of where we trick ourselves into think we have problem solving when we don't. The parent versus real problem solving. And a quick example of that is, um, let's say, an adventure game where, you know, you do one thing and the outcome of that then presents two other opportunities. You can take one or the other. And then you choose that one, and then that one gives you another. And your success at choosing your alternatives and taking the actions necessary results in you saving the life of the your the of the uh, 
person you came to rescue and so on. Whereas if you had other things, the troll eats them, you know, <laughs> or something like that, or eats you or whatever. There's a game called Zork that used to do this and, and the Mystic, and there's these type of adventure games. Well, they actually went and stripped all the content out of one of these adventure games and reloaded it with new content and sat down with people and had them play the game and said, okay, now why did you make the decision here? And when the person said, well, when I was playing this other game, I always knew that if there were piles of something like leaves, to look under the leaves. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, and that's how they found it. They'd throw that out. They wouldn't put anything under the leaves then. In other words, every time they found something where the experienced game player talked about how they learned it in the previous game, they threw it out. When they did that and made it as experience neutral as possible, there was no difference in performance between novice game players and experienced game players. <laughs> what they found was that they hadn't learned problem solving. They learned a series of what they call condition action pairs. Yeah. In this situation, do that, do this, do that. And a lot of what looks like problem solving expertise is actually a history of these paired associates. Just like the chimp who had been exposed to the, the, the toys was able to solve certain problems that the ones that had not been exposed. So it's, it's that, that question of what is creativity? What is mm -hmm. problem solving? Right. So when you look at problem solving is you're engaged and supplement, creating supplemental stimuli that restrict response alternatives along the dimensions that solve the problem. But you don't need to do that if you know the answer. <laughs> In other words, if you've got so much experience, you look at that and say, oh, the carburetor is out of, out of adjustment. I didn't have to problem solve. And I don't have carburetors anymore. I'm dating myself. Right. But uh, you know, it's out of adjustment. Uh, you don't have to solve. What they found is that you find the same thing is true of of cardiologists and physicians. In other words, the experienced physician may be no better problem solver than the new resident. The mm. difference is they've seen it before. That's right. right. That's right. And so sometimes you get, when you've got something that's really a problem and outside the realm, you get better approaches from the less experienced. Mm. Yes. The, the, the experience isn't always, the experienced person isn't always the best one and oftentimes isn't a true problem solver and this was found for chess grand champions that the primary skill that the chess grand champions have that they have tens of thousands of memorized moves the strategy plays very little role so they're not smarter they're more experienced they're yeah well they they have done a lot of if you take a a series of 10 boards and a chess grandmaster can remember what's on each board and the moves playing, you know, someone, someone who's not another grandmaster, but someone good at chess. And he can play 10 at the same time. And he can remember each of the, you know, the board configurations, right? Except if you randomly distribute the pieces, then they can't. <laughs> In other words, They've never seen it before. That's the experiment's been done. Yes. And uh, Kasparov played Big Blue and lost, right? And played these 
uh, AI systems. And what they found was the AI systems could go through these condition action pairs in the history of chess moves better than a human. So even a well-trained grandmaster human can't beat them. What he did then was pair up with an algorithm. In other words, an AI algorithm plus him versus an AI algorithm, and they could work together because he had a little bit more of the strategy. So at the at the margins, the strategy counts. If you only have that, and you have that plus, and it, it counted. So if you could get, but if the condition action pairs overwhelm the strategy because you just know so many, but if, the, if that were made equal, then the strategy would work. So in 2018 in Dubai, we had a world uh, championships of people and their AI competing against each other. Wow. Just... What a crazy now, world we live in. And here's the fascinating thing. The person who won was not a chess grandmaster. Oh, no. No, it's an engineer who understood strategy. So the chess took care of uh, the, the AI took care of the chess. He took care of the strategy. Hmm. So it was very, very fascinating uh, when you get into these, what these repertoires really are and really what's their function of. And our assumptions about these things tend not to be accurate. So as you gain more and more experience, how do you know if you've got any skill at problem solving? How do you actually learn problem solving? I brought up the question one time, which nobody understood my question, so I quit asking, was, uh, was that it probably blocks learning problem solving. Because the more skills you get, the less problem solving you have to do. Yeah. And you probably, it, it, it likely blocks. That's what I was just thinking. Solving rather than encourages it. Yeah. Yeah, to learn problem solving, one, there's, we can teach direct problem solving. There are strategies that'll teach problem solving uh, that are generic to all problems, by the way. Uh, you do have content knowledge to know. You have, can't solve a math problem without math. But the problem solving piece of that is no different from solving an uh, issue in English literature. My wife is an expert, Joanne. You know, Joanne, uh, she's yeah. an expert in teaching and training problem solving. She, she's got uh, programs to teach it to children in particular. You teach it to adults as well, but she focuses on children and gets some amazing repertoires in these kids. But you have to put them in, in conditions where problems they haven't seen before, right? And to train them that way. You can't train someone in problem solving on something they're good at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that, that makes total sense. I can see that. So, you know, I don't know. We got off on a... Like this is a rabbit hole that we didn't talk about. So you have to love problems right. and emerge yourselves in problems all the time if you want to become good at solving them. A guy by the name of Arthur Wimby, Dr. Arthur Wimby, now deceased, unfortunately. I knew him pretty well. Uh, when he was at Purdue University, he went around and tested people on problem solving and so forth. You know what the number one reason people fail to solve problems? Because they don't like it. They don't try. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, they look at the problem and say, oh, that's too hard that's for me. That's too hard, yeah. And they walk away. 
when in actuality, once you train him in the problems up, it wasn't hard for him at all. It's they actually, look for problems. Yeah, yeah. People basically don't try oftentimes to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. The other, the other reason people fail to solve problems correctly is that we have a real likelihood of jumping to conclusions, I'm guessing, and then, oh, that sounds good. That must be it. Let's, I'll, I'll say that. Well, the only reason you're doing that is because you know it was a good guess that you came up, but that may not be the solution. So mm -hmm. guessing also blocks good problems. You never guess when you're problem solving, and the uh, you make inferences that you then check but you don't guess. So this is an area, Joe, that we definitely have to have another conversation around because, you know, I talk about with the horses, I want them to become good puzzle solvers. Mm -hmm. And I want them to love solving puzzles. So we, so we need to have this conversation to see if I'm even remotely in the ballpark of what problem solving actually means. <laughs> and then how do we teach it? more right. effectively to our learners, That's whether they are human learners, because I want the human learners to love problem solving as right. well, or our animal learners. That's right. I could show you a video of little kids, little kids, you know, 10, 12 years old, something like that, doing these, solving these complex problems that just blow you away by talking, you know, talking out loud as they're doing it. And the talking out loud isn't used to reflect their cognitive processes. The talking out loud is the problem solving. Ah. It's how the supplementary stimulation is produced and responded to. And so it's the secret of problem solving is actually talking out loud. And one of the things that Arthur Wimby found is when he went around and looked at outstanding problem solvers in a range of disciplines, uh, law, art, sciences, both uh, physical and life sciences, he found that the greatest known problem solvers all exhibited the similar repertoires of speaking out loud to themselves while they're doing it. And yet we penalize that. Yes, I know. Wow. And, and actually, it's, that's how really good people do it. They, they actually, and... They use pencils, make diagrams, marks, all kinds of little aids to help themselves along, draw little lines and put them in and, and order things along it. They don't do it in their heads. Wow. In oh, their we have to we're we have to have this conversation. This is well, this is this is exciting. <laughs> yeah. But we have kept you very greedily. Yeah. We have kept you. You, 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 it's probably getting too dark for you to go have your run. Uh, eat. I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's still light here. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's been dark here for now a couple of hours. So. Dark here for another hour. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, but we are we hugely appreciate this because this has been a really fascinating and I think very useful afternoon because the wheels will be turning in terms of how does all how does this help us to make sense of the world as we experience it in our animals so. well and uh, um and though i want to i want to make the disclaimer i am no animal trainer so so uh, well outside of the laboratory we trained some pigeons to do some yes. pretty amazing but uh, but uh 
so, you know, many people have come up with solutions I would never think of. And that's what I find uh, going to the animal training conferences. I love them so much because I always learn stuff. Uh, people come up with ingenious things. Your your work, Alex, has always been impressive to me. And others uh, that I listen to, extraordinary work. And so, you know, it's uh, uh, there's a lot to be learned both ways. Yes, yes, yes. It's definitely, we need the back and forth. So huge, huge thanks. And thank you. Hopefully, uh, you'll be up to doing it again. We won't. We will oh, yeah. we'll let you have a little bit of a respite All from right. us. But this is just such an enjoyable afternoon. That I want to thank Joe again for a fabulous, fabulous conversation. I hope you found it as fascinating and mind-bending as I did. I'm very much looking forward to our next conversation. Again, as a reminder, Joe's book is Nonlinear Contingency Analysis, and it's available on the internet. A simple search should get you the book. And we also have listed the main articles that Joe talked about in the show notes. Go to equosity.com for that list. And if you enjoy this type of conversation, do please share the podcast with your friends. Yes, it is about all things equine, but it's also about a whole lot more. So you don't have to be a horse person to find these conversations of interest. So train well. And for those of you who are lucky enough to share your life with horses, have fun. Have fun.